Hey, coming up on the next episode of Unpolished MBA. And I got an amazing opportunity to work for a startup. It was my first startup ever. Um, I was one of the first like five employees hired. And we did really well in terms of all of the progress that we made and the scale that we were able to achieve in just a short period of time to the point where that startup was acquired a year later. Unpolished NBA audience, I'm your host, Monique Mills, and today I have with me Shobanda Haith. Hi, Shobanda. Hi, Monique. How are you? I'm so excited and thank you for having me. Oh, it's awesome to have you here. So I want to start with, uh, we were starting to talk about this. I'm like, let me hit record because I want to know a little bit about your journey because you actually do have an MBA, right? Yes, I do. Okay, I want to know a little bit about your journey getting there. You say it's an interesting story. <laughs> yes, it is. I So when I started, so I have a master's in healthcare administration as well, and I achieved that before the MBA. And one of the interesting things about what led to the MBA, among many things, was the fact that when I first came out of a graduate school first time, I knew very quickly that I didn't want to go into the hospital setting, but I still wanted to be in healthcare. I still wanted to help people, but just in a different way. And I got an amazing opportunity to work for a startup. It was my first startup ever. Um, I was one of the first like five employees hired. And we did really well in terms of all of the progress that we made and the scale that we were able to achieve in just a short period of time to the point where that startup was acquired a year later. So they'd been in business for about three years prior to me coming on board, but then they changed the whole team in like a six month period, which included bringing me on. And then a year later, we were acquired. And you know, still worked for that company, had a great time. What was your role in that company? So I started out as a, I think we called it like the provider manager or provider practice manager. And initially my role was to work with all of the physician practices that we were onboarding and bringing into kind of our fold. But we, we pivoted a little bit about, I would say about six months in. And my role became more of an implementation role. So I started to implement our program. So the back end of it is we worked in healthcare and we worked in concierge medicine and direct primary care medicine. So we were taking doctors who worked in a traditional style and were looking to transition into kind of more of a concierge primary care. And we were helping support them in that change. And so when we pivoted out of the private practice setting and we pivoted into the employer wellness space. So we were pretty much standing up corporate clinics within employer spaces and then also creating offsite clinics as well, staffing the providers. So everything you could think of to stand it up fully, that was my role. Okay. So you did that. You guys got acquired like a year later of you joining. And then what? Yeah. So kept, you know, Working and helping to build a team, had a team that rolled up funds for me. And when we were acquired, yeah, there were a whole bunch of, I would say, employees around my same age. And they were all directors doing similar roles. And I'll never forget that one of the individuals that was brought in to, I guess, kind of work align me at first and learn what I did was a director. And so I had the conversation about wanting to change my title to director. And me being who I am, I didn't just say, 
I, you know, I want to be a director, right? What I did was I went and I did the research, right? So I pulled compensation information. I pulled skill set information. I had metrics. And so I aligned and packaged all of that in order to, you know, demonstrate the case that, uh, quite frankly, I was titled as senior manager already. I was being compensated at a level that aligned. And so I was making the case for director. And I can remember the conversation and how it started off with the fact that these individuals, right, the other political directors, again, who are about my same age, had MBAs. <laughs> they had, some of them had started businesses before, some had not. And that, you know, they, that's part of why they were directors. And that, quite frankly, there was a belief that I was not yet a director level. Wow. Yep. That is very interesting. Okay, tell me more. <laughs> so I then went on to make the case for associate director. And then the comment was, well, we have to, you know, make the other person that that title as well. And I said, that's fully fine. I think it's fair. Never got a director title out of that role. Let me just say working with that company never did. And what was really interesting about that is, I hate to say it and I cringe when I say it, but it's so true that in the background, I think years later, there was still always this wonder of, you know, do I need an MBA to be successful in the startup world? Even if the startup is not my own, can I walk into an organization and even in healthcare, the industry I've been in almost my entire career, can I walk in there and still be equally as successful as someone that comes in with an MBA. And that has weighed on me for years. In reality, when you look at what you were doing and once you you did your MBA and you learned certain things, what did you think what what did you think they saw or they thought was missing? Was there anything? Was it a real gap? Yeah. That's a great question. I think at the time I didn't feel like an MBA was necessary for the role. Because I had a master's in healthcare administration, I knew healthcare inside and out. And we were at the core a healthcare organization. So I kind of felt like in the midst of it, I felt like it was a way to, to separate people, even if it wasn't necessary for the job, the role in the industry that we were in. And I think that the NBAers, and they came from great schools, right? They came from Stanford. They came from Booth. They came from the top tier NBA schools as well. Where I found the friction was that I was actually doing the work. And for me, it was hard to reconcile this idea that I'm doing the work and I'm producing and I have metrics to show I can see in the clinic up beginning to end with just the signing of a piece of paper giving us permission. And someone with an MBA from a great school can sit in a position that is hired and not necessarily prove that. I think that's where the friction came for me. I got you. Well, you know what? That's very interesting. Do you think it was the paper? Well, the, re the reason I'm asking that is because I wonder if the or your organization would take someone off the street you know, that they didn't know because they had an MBA and give them those type of higher roles? Or was it usually someone internally that got those promotions? So was it the MBA or was it relation? And that's a great question, too. I think that's so 
as time has gone on, I think that's what I've probably learned is that it's not necessarily the, especially in healthcare, right? I don't know that it's necessary in that role. Now, there's other roles that I think by nature of having an MBA, it absolutely matters. Then I think in that particular role itself, I don't know that, that I think it matters. But what I do think is key is having an MBA from a certain institution does, in fact, give you access to a network. And, and it gives you a jump start to establishing and developing relationships before you even ever graduate that help you on the back end get a foot in the door when you're just starting. So two or three years later, your starting point in an organization, you could have come in as an analyst, you could have come in as a manager and worked your way up as a director in a year or in two years because you were able to get access to that role quicker then maybe someone else that didn't have the MBA that had to spend one or two years in a completely different role outside of the organization just to come into the organization at the starting role that you had with two years of experience more because they didn't have the relationship because they didn't go to the school. Yes. Okay. Those relationships, I swear, like I talk about this in entrepreneurship, although the relationships in entrepreneurship are so different than in corporate, but I'm telling you, the relationships just seems to be the the foundation for like everything, right? <laughs> like the education, yeah. certainly. Yeah. But the education, like where you go and who you meet while you're there, it's uh, it's serious business. So I appreciate you sharing that with us because we don't really get that deep into it all the time on these episodes. So I'm glad you did because sharing your journey really helps open the eyes of people when they think about, you know, thinking about getting more education. It's not an and or, but getting more education and getting the relationships, not just learning more, but getting to know more people, like the more people, you know, the quote unquote luckier you get. Absolutely. So you did your MBA. When did you complete that? I I just completed my MBA, actually. Okay. So I graduated in May of this year. And now you're into entrepreneurship. So did that happen while in the program, after the program? Like, where did that come to be? It happened during the program. And I think it, it's such a beautiful thing for things to come full circle, right? Because I had such a defined position on MBAs prior to being accepted and attending my program. And then as, you know, the, the two years, you know, kind of progressed, it's like, wow, I think I get it now. Right. Mm-hmm. And so, so having just graduated, I'm like, absolutely can see in retrospect, you know, 10 years back, what the interest in an MBA was for certain startups and for certain roles. So. Yeah. Yeah. So your startup is BrightPay and well, BrightPay Health Corp. Like I want to be very clear because I understand how names can be, uh, you know, mixed up with other industries and other things. I just want to be very clear on the name It's BrightPay Health Corp. And I wanted to know, did you, do you have a co-founder? And if so, where did you find them? I do have a co-founder. My co-founder is also my husband. Okay. And so he, he's part-time, so not full-time with our startup. 
but he does lend his expertise because he's very supportive of not just what I do, but the issue that we're trying to solve. So we are actually working with providers to help solve the issue of medical debt and very specifically the impact that surprise medical bills have on like patients and their families long term. So that's something that definitely hits home for most people. In what ways do you help with that problem? So what does your product do? We work specifically with providers. So we built technology that doctors can use to actually create very clear cost estimates for their patients up front. So that before you even see the doctor, you have an idea as a patient exactly what that's going to cost, which is pretty vital to those that are uninsured or self-insured. And there's a whole gamut of people that fall into that band of individuals, right? Because we often think it's kind of lower wage workers and it's not true. It includes both working professionals, it includes consultants, independent consultants, entrepreneurs. And so it's very important that individuals that don't have formal coverage actually understand very clearly what different services are going to cost them up front so that they can financially plan for them, plan for it appropriately. So let's take a moment to thank our biggest sponsor of this podcast, TPM Focus, a strategy and execution consulting firm focused on generating revenue and finding product market fit for startups and small to medium sized companies that are launching a new innovation or entering a new market. In a nutshell, if you're launching a new innovation or into a new market, we'll align your technology, marketing, sales, and customer success with your financial goals to ensure your company makes money while finding and solidifying your place in the market. Head over to tpmfocus.com to see testimonials and reach out if you'd like to work with us. So we actually create the technology to make it easy for the providers to be able to do that quickly and seamlessly. And then patients can view that within a digital platform. It can see line item by line item what the doctor's anticipating is going to occur, how much it's going to cost. And then they can actually pay for it within the application. So if you've got it, the funds and you're ready to pay for it, great. If you need some additional financial support, maybe you need to create a payment plan or maybe you need to finance, we can help with that as well. So is the estimate that they're given, is that binding within a certain range or anything of that nature with the doctor? Yeah, great question. So the doctor will do their best to come up with a complete estimate. And you know, there's new legislation that went out in January 2022 around No Surprise Act and the creation of good faith estimates. So there's legislation out there that requires doctors and practices and hospitals to provide their patients, especially those that uninsured specifically, with a good faith estimate. So the range, according to the legislation, is that the estimate needs to be within $400 or the patient can dispute that and go through a formal dispute process. The caveat is that, of course, we recognize that in certain circumstances, a doctor may think that they know what's going to occur and then they get the patient in front of them and something else comes up that wasn't disclosed before or they uncovered something that maybe will lead to more expenses beyond that threshold. And so, of course, if the doctor can appropriately document that and it's clear that they at least provided an initial estimate up front and then they document, you know, the new findings that maybe led to a new estimate, you know, yeah. that makes sense. But otherwise, 
the legislation requires within about $400 range. Okay. Well, I mean, that's better than nothing. You know, even still that $400 gap with some people, they're like, I can't do that. You know what I mean? Like they want it to be finite and understandably so because $400 is a lot. This is very interesting because when you think about other industries, like I can't even think of anything else where we go and we just have work done and we worry about how much it's going to cost later. Like, I, I have no idea how we got into this rut, you know, in our society where it's like, yeah, yeah, you're going to say yes to it anyways. And it's like, no, some people may say, no, never mind. I don't have three grand or 30, 30,000 or whatever for that. All right. I'll just, you know, deal with whatever. But it's almost like we're not given the option. Yeah, not given the option. And also, You know, what's even more concerning and what rests on my heart is the fact that if you do get a bill for $3,000 and the doctor says, this is what we're going to do and it's going to cost $3,000, that in fact, that's exactly what happens, which is that, you know, patients will delay it. They'll put it off. They'll forego it. And the long-term impact of not getting the cure that you need is far worse than trying to come up with a solution or a plan, right, to cover the 3000 so that it helps you now and preserves you for the future, right? So that that's what we're trying to really address, right? It's the fact that if I don't have $3,000 now, then what are my options? And a lot of times it's on the patient, right? A lot of times it's on the patient to have to figure that out because if a provider doesn't offer financing, which a number of providers don't, and if they if they don't offer financing, then that's it from a patient perspective, right? It's like, okay, well, then I have to find another doctor. And that shouldn't be the case. If you're able to connect with the financing partner as a patient and they're willing to, you know, create that payment to the provider so then you can rest assured that you can have that service, it shouldn't be the provider's decision as to whether you you have the capability to finance or not, right? It shouldn't yeah. be... It shouldn't be there. The provider's decision as to, you know, whether they take a payment plan or not. Like, if they don't want to take it in pieces, that's okay. But shouldn't there be something to help patients be able to pay it in pieces? I think to your point about other industries, I always look at a firm as a really great example of how, you know, you could take that model and you're applying to like retail, right? Yeah, you um, allowing people to buy clothes and jewelry with it how about healthcare? exactly i see i can see that as a whole industry but you know how if there's anything to exploit especially in that realm there'll always be some folks that are looking to exploit that but i'm guessing i'm surprised it isn't more of a a well-known industry like a firm is for consumer goods i think there's some that are emerging but what's happening in healthcare is you either have a finance company or you have a payments company so you just kind of have one or two. And so they're, we're looking to kind of bring it all together, but th- there are some, and I think financing is the way to, to meet the affirmed type of um, solution, right? In terms yeah. of paying it in pieces. But again, a lot of that is, is provider driven. So if the provider has a finance company, then you could use it. But if they don't, then what's your next option? And usually the next option is negotiate, try to negotiate with the provider and and negotiate an in-house, what I call like an in-house manual payment plan where they charge your card once a month or every two weeks. But on the provider side, you haven't come from that side of the house. It's also very tough because they're very busy. And so someone has to 
to set that up for you. And then if you have a change in your card or if you want to make an extra payment, that becomes a manual process that, you know, quite frankly, can stop their day because they're helping a patient in front of them and you call because you want to make an extra payment. Well, as much as you're trying to do the right thing, from a process perspective, that may not help them either, right? So so those are some yes. of the solutions that are out there now, but they're not really supportive of either the practice or the patient. That's so interesting because we have those kind of solutions in the tech world. Like, you know, my marketing automation CRM system, I have that option and, I, I'm, you know, I'm a consultant and a, you know, business acquisition person. So I don't understand. And I know that there are different you know, things that's associated with the medical field. But I don't understand why some of the technologies that we use, like that one, for example, updating credit card, doing additional payment, like I have that in my business. Why couldn't it be applied into the medical realm? Because it's actually something where it wouldn't require a person. I'm always interested to know why things aren't adopted as easily in the medical world. And I think we all just chop it up to, oh, HIPAA, oh, privacy, oh, all of, you know, so... We don't know. We're just kind of waiting for info. Will your company help educate us on this stuff? Absolutely. So one of the things we just did for providers and are considering doing this for patients as well is we just did a webinar on No Surprise Act. It's free for providers to take it. They get two continually add credits for it. And it really just educates them on what is No Surprise Act and what are their responsibilities and requirements around furnishing their patients with good faith estimates. So we're looking now to kind of shift into how do we do more patient education around this too, so yeah. that patients know. So we worked with an influencer about a month and a half ago on TikTok, and she did a quick little video online on this as well and helping people understand like in a snapshot what they could ask for and what they're required to get. So, so we're working more and more on education because we think that's really important. Is for people to go on both sides to really know and understand, you know, what the legislation requires, but then also why should you do it? Back to the why question, I was just going to say everything that you're doing, you know, as far as that goes with having a platform for patients to be able to see how much something is going to be paid for all of that. These are great benefits, you know, to us as consumers of society. I'm thinking with the providers, why would they say no to something like your product? A couple of reasons. One, I think it's just the education on what we can do and how, quite frankly, not only does it meet the regulation, but also how much of an impact it can have on its patients and ultimately the practice's bottom line. So I just think not really seeing that picture. And I think the second thing, in all honesty and in all fairness, it's changed and technology within Provider practices at hospitals is such a hairy thing to implement and stand up in the first place that making a change to a system is really difficult because that's what everyone assumes. They assume that in order to use our technology, we're going to have to change everything, which right. is absolutely not true. Right. But that's the assumption. And then the second thing is okay, well, if we use your technology and we don't have to change our existing one how much double entry do we have to do, right? And do we want to work in two systems? And even if the amount of time is minimal to work in a second system, it's just the idea that, oh, I got to log into here. Oh, I got to log into there. I'm so busy. I see patients. When are we going to have time? And I just think it's a mentality until we actually show the doctors. And usually we show the doctors first and then their team Mm -hmm. what it can do. And once they see... (laughs) 
how little time it takes them to achieve some of the same that they're using one of their other systems to achieve, it becomes like a light bulb comes on. It seems like it's going to be a lot, but once they see it in action, it's like, okay, in seconds, right? They can produce, you know, estimates. In seconds, a patient can see it. In seconds, a patient can pay. And in a matter of hours, 48 hours, the doctor can get paid. And so it's just seeing it, I think, makes the difference. But the initial reactions, of course, oh my gosh, it's going to be a technology implementation. It's going to take weeks to months to implement, stand up and all this new training. And so I think it's just the thought of that. <laughs> it's People hate change. They yes. hate it. They hate it. Right. Yeah. Absolutely. But I'm always interested to know, especially when it comes to healthcare and the providers, the doctors themselves, like, are you not aware that people are struggling? Is your life so much different than the average person? You know, or can you not care that much because you got a job to do? You know, like, I really think understanding how they think and their awareness of who they're serving and the position that they're in, it would be helpful in in, in helping there be a common understanding and respect. So I was wondering, with your doctors, are they unaware? Are they aware that there's a problem? And also, are they aware that solutions are available like yours for that problem? Like, where would you say in like those top three? I didn't go through all of the stages of awareness, but what would you say in those top three? Where might they fall? I definitely think that they're not necessarily aware of the problem and are not necessarily aware of the impact. I think that Doctors are doing the best that they can do because their focus is clinical. They want to make sure that their patients get well and they want to deliver care the best that they can. And so I think that's usually at first primary focus and rightfully so. And so I think when it comes to being aware of the financial impact to that, I think doctors are fairly removed from that process, you know? And so I think it's kind of, and they are doing transparent pricing to some extent, but they'll say, oh, we have sliding scales to help support our patients. So I think they think what we're doing is working, right? I think that's really it. And so they're not really aware of how the circumstances where it may not work because they are somewhat removed from it. And that's where they are. And so I think what really helps is, you know, I had a doctor talk about one of his patients and one of his patients the family, he offers financing, actually, but the family had, you know, their $200,000 income family, and they couldn't qualify for financing for a significant procedure they needed to have done. And he tried and tried, and he was perplexed because, you know, the physician was like, hey, I don't even understand why they can't qualify for any financing because they do have the income. But at the same time, he needed to find a solution to help them get the treatment. And so that was a rare case, right? Because that doctor was really in tune and scrubbed in. Mm -hmm. And so he became aware that this does happen and therefore was led to our solution because of that. But I think most docs are removed because they're focused on the clinical part of it. And they think what they are doing is kind of helping. And I think to some extent, they're doing the best that they can. But, you know, there's tools out there that can help them do more. I always wonder... I know they're focused on the clinical side. And I'd be like, they need an MBA 
to their side. Like, you know, they need that. They need that business person there to, that they could just can put them down on like this is a business need. You know what I mean? Like, I actually know a few folks that are MD, MBA, and they're interested more in the business side of things than being on the clinical side. And so it's good to see that kind of rising because that would definitely help transform the industry to to accept and adopt technology such as yours. So I could really go on and on on this topic, but I want to respect your time and thank you for coming on the Unpolished MBA today. And I want you to share the best way for folks to reach out to connect with you, learn more about your company or potentially become your customer or investor. Who knows? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. You can reach me at, you can visit our website at rightpay.org. You can also email me at shaith at brightpay, B-R-I-G-H-T-P-A-Y dot org. And then I'm always on LinkedIn. So absolutely find me on LinkedIn as well. All right, everyone. I'm going to have links to all of those things in this episode and to the in the show notes. And so feel free to reach out. Vonda, thank you again for joining us today and sharing so much insightful information about your industry. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Now you have the option to text me any question that you have about your business, about career, and I will answer it on the show. So just go to unpolishedmba.com forward slash text. And from there, you'll be able to text anytime, any question, and I'll answer it on the air. Thank you for listening to the Unpolished MBA podcast. To hear more episodes or to request to become a guest, please visit unpolishedmba.com.